Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. How are you doing? I'm good. It's raining, but I'm okay. Yeah, it's we're we're in a cool new recording space, which That's I'm right. digging. Yeah, it's like a, a a shipping container with um wood chip on the walls, so the sound quality might be a bit different from what you're used to. Bear with us. Today, we're going to be talking about social media and literature. Has anyone written a great social media novel yet? Is Twitter destroying our ability to read novels in the first place? How worried should we be about bookstagrammers? Very worried. (laughs) Why are you even listening to this podcast instead of reading a book? (laughs) What is even the point of podcasting, Octavia? It's a moral panic. We'll be asking these not at all panic questions today. And as usual, our theme has been inspired by our guest. We're incredibly excited about the author we have with us today, Kylie Reed, whose debut novel, Such a Fun Age, is a marvelously fun and sharp story about Mira, an African-American babysitter, and her entanglement with the white family she sits for. Octavia, do you want to introduce Kylie? I do. Kylie Reed is a recent graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, where she was the recipient of the Truman Capote Fellowship. She lives in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Such a Fun Age is her first novel, and it is fucking brilliant yeah we both loved it yeah yeah we're really excited to talk to her so today you'll hear our interview with kylie we'll talk more generally about the theme of social media and literature and finally we will give our usual book recommendations so delete your account at least for the next hour and focus on literary friction i like that thanks Kylie Reed, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So we've asked you to start with a reading. Could you set it up for us? Yes. So this is about two to three weeks after the incident at Market Depot and Amira's babysitting and Alex really wants her to stay and have a glass of wine. Amira, she added, do you drink wine? Amira carefully accepted a crayon from Briar. She blinked and said, I mean, yeah. Alex took two glasses from a cupboard and thought, yeah, you do. She sat down, and with a bottle of wine in between her legs, she somehow managed to uncork the bottle while holding Catherine. When Catherine looked up at her, Alex said, Hi, did you miss me or what? Alex told Amira she could take the wine glass into the bathroom with Briar, that she did it all the time. She hadn't eaten since lunch, and as she sipped her glass of wine, cleaned up toys from the kitchen table, and listened to Amira give Briar a quick bath, She sensed those lax and wonderful feelings of decorum leaving her body. She lit two candles on the kitchen counter. She turned on a playlist with Tracy Chapman and Fleetwood Mac. And as she turned off the bright kitchen lights and left the chandelier blushing over the table, Alex realized she was very much courting her babysitter. But the night was sweet, and it reminded her of Fridays with Rachel, Jody, and Tamara. She hadn't poured a glass of wine for another woman in months. I wanted to start by asking you about characters in this book because they're so tangible you know sometimes it it almost felt like I was watching a movie rather than reading and I wonder how did you get into the characters how did you can you talk a little bit about the process of making them seem like real people when you were writing yeah uh that's a great question because that's where I start is with characters always of who are these people and I knew that I wanted an awkward relationship between three people um and lucky for me I got two awkward three-way relationships one with um a child a mom and a babysitter one with a young woman her new boyfriend and her employer I love characters who are really familiar but can surprise you and I like characters who know better but don't act better all the time and when I teach students I have them do an exercise where they have to make two completely opposite characters but neither are good or bad and that's a huge thing that I try and do too that people make mistakes but they're very human and also have really good qualities and so if there's going to be friends you have to show why they're friends and what they do for each other and if someone's you know dating someone else you have to see why he's so appealing to that person uh for me dialogue really leads me into characters um that's a huge starting point for me as well so i would say dialogue and making sure that there's no good and bad that's where i start from yeah i think that comes through big time in the book i love how ambiguous most of your characters are and the the kind of journeys that their character developments each take but you start with quite an explosive dynamic right um 
the novel begins with a security guard accusing Amira, who's the babysitter, of kidnapping the white girl that she's looking after while she takes her to a grocery store. And I w- wanted to know why you chose to start with that incident, what it galvanized for you. Yeah, I didn't start writing the incident immediately, I'll tell you that. Um, I started with more like journal entries from both of the characters and I gave it to a friend and, and he said to start a little bit stronger and that's where the grocery store came in. But by the time I started writing it again, I kind of knew the characters a little bit better. And so on one level, I love books that have this inciting incident that like joins everyone together for the rest of it. But also I'm just kind of an impatient reader and I need something at the beginning. The worst recommendation to me is when people say the first 50 pages are a little bit boring, but then it gets so I just don't care (laughs) to that point. I need it to be interesting from the first page. As a literary agent, I really identify with that. (laughs) And I often make people put big incidents at the beginning of a book because it is a way to explode something and then have to pick up the pieces. I think so too. It also shows you how characters react in real time and I feel like that's a great way to get to know someone rather than someone just telling me about a character. It's interesting though that you started with journal entries. Is that something that you do to build a picture of a character that you'll then discard in the writing later? I feel I I don't often do it but I feel like I end up doing uh profiles of characters in certain ways like something I'm writing right now I'm listing items that they have in the refrigerator or the things that are they have in their bedroom Um, any kind of character profile I think helps inform you for the rest of the novel and you immediately start to learn about their tendencies as a person do you find they surprise you when you put them having done that back work when you put them in a situation do you find yourself writing being like oh my god Amira what are you doing (laughs) um I think sometimes it's, it's like you it's almost like you're giving your characters superpowers and in a certain situation, you're like, oh, well, they would if they can fly, they would fly away from the scene. So I have to put them back in the room somehow or you have to create other boundaries to keep them all in the same place when you know who they are. I think that plot lines will surprise me more than characters do, I think. And if everything is going according to my plan, I know I'm doing something wrong. Usually when things change and surprise me, that's when I know it's going better. I love that. So were there a lot of surprising plot developments in this particular novel as well? Uh, yeah, that you well, can I, give away without giving yeah, away totally. the book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, my favorite scene now is the scene that happens in Amira's apartment that we don't see until later into the book. And for probably two years, I thought that that scene would happen at the Chamberlain house. And then when I came to it, I was like, there's no way she would leave her apartment in the state that she's in. And so that scene opened up this whole world of me showing, you know, those items in the bedroom and like who she is. And so it ended up being this really great opportunity. And I changed the entire ending many times as well. Yeah, That's great to hear yeah. because I think we both loved the ending. Oh, I loved yeah. it. Good. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about babysitting because yeah. this is a novel in part about babysitting. And, you know, as the marketing materials around the book also say, you were a babysitter it for was. a long time. I think f- between 2007 and 2014. Yes. Is yes, that right? Good date. Yeah. yeah um, and in New York City. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about how your own experience informed this novel. I think the biggest thing I took from my time as a babysitter was the feeling of working in someone else's home and the foods that you have and the way that your voice changes when you're talking to a child and that really interesting relationship you have with a family that's paying you to be there. And I had experiences where I really did feel like I was part of the family. I had experiences that were really awkward where they try and level with me in a way that is really superficial. Um, I think more than anything, I took the feeling of that and also feeling as if this isn't a real job. I'm putting quotes around that um, and not having health insurance and worrying about money and all those feelings. Um, Amira and I are completely different. And I, I think other people are much more interesting to write about than myself. But I definitely brought in that whole feeling of working in someone else's house to this book. It felt like one of the most vital messages in it, actually, that it's really fucked up that this is a job that's valued so highly privately by the families, but is not given the legitimacy oh, of yeah. a job with like security, healthcare, holiday. Yeah, yeah I it's just, very hard work caretaking. It's such hard work. It's such a weird thing because I think a lot of people think, oh, I was a babysitter when I was 13. And so that must mean it's not hard, but you're not getting paid a lot. And the margin of error is so small. If you mess up, you could change a child's life, your life for the rest of your life. And you're not even given health care on top of it. And I think there's so many things from days of slavery to domestic laborers not having their rights that affect child caregivers today. And I think moments where all of that history comes back to the forefront are really interesting on the page. 
And I loved that Amira is a really good babysitter. That was one of the things about her character that was never questioned. She's an excellent babysitter. Mm -hmm. Was that something you really wanted to show? Yeah, I was really interested in showing uh, what people notice about Amira in both public and in private. Um, Her being a good babysitter kind of goes unnoticed by by Alix for the most part, but Alex is so obsessed with, you know, her perfume or, you know, is she talking shit about me with her friends or anything like that? But the fact that she really loves her child doesn't really take precedence a little bit. And I think that that's a big part of, you know, late capitalism, like work dynamics that sometimes being good at your job or not means something. Sometimes it doesn't. And yeah, for Amira, it's really unfortunate. Well, it's, it's something that comes up in this novel a lot, the language of ownership that gets used, which is obviously made even more uncomfortable because Alex is white and Amira is black. But the way that um, when Alex refers to my sitter, mm-hmm. is she talking about the woman who babysits her child or is she talking about the woman who's kind of babysitting her almost? And mm-hmm. the way that that relationship is so, as you said, and as you're reading at the beginning showed, like it's fraught and Alex wants Amira's approval and she kind of wants her friendship but also she's buying her attention and yeah it's so complicated because I remember when I was babysitting and sometimes a mom would say you know do you want to have a glass of wine with me and a lot of times I'd be like yeah your your kids were really bad today I really want a glass of wine with you that sounds really great but I was not like in a as vulnerable position as Amira is and the fact that she's her employee makes her feel like she has to stay if she doesn't stay she's not going to keep her around and my favorite thing is when language does so much because uh you know I see a chiropractor and when I refer to him I say my chiropractor but it's not layered with all of the history of slavery in America. And my sitter sounds very different, especially when you really want that person to be your friend. There's a lot going on there. Yeah. And the way that Alix behaves is quite immature. So there is almost a sense of she's kind of childlike in some ways. And Amira is the adult in the dynamic mm-hmm. because Amira refuses to be drawn into Alix's manipulative kind of look at me, look at me, give right. me your love. Yeah. It's so funny, though, because... Alex does have really childish thoughts. At the same time, I knew some crazy moms, and I feel like Alex plays it cool sometimes when she needs to, but then sometimes she just loses it a little bit as well. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think being able to see the thoughts of Alex really exposes the limits of even the most like well meaning liberal mm-hmm. whiteness, which is like she doesn't think that she that she's racist and mm-hmm. she doesn't think that she doesn't like black people. She thinks she loves black people. And she yeah. is, is so to the point where she's basically fetishizing Amira. And we really see that I, you had this one passage, um, Alex fantasized about Amira discovering things about her that shaped what Alex saw as the truest version of herself. Like the fact that one of Alex's closest friend was also black. And mm-hmm. it's like, you see that she's so deluded in some ways about her own experience. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that when you were thinking about the dynamic between these two women, was that something you really wanted to bring out? Yeah. I, I love complicated characters so much. And I think that one of the more complicated things about Alex is the fact that I don't think that she has a problem communicating with African-American people. I think that when she doesn't have a class solidarity with someone, that's what really trips her up. And that on top of Amira being a black woman of extremely dark skin, of being someone that works in her house. It's just this perfect storm for her to try and level with her in this really awkward, inauthentic way. Yeah, Alex is a person for whom, I think this happens often, where liberalism and feminism kind of meet at this point where the thoughts are, you know, if I am so concerned with not being racist, there's no way that I could benefit or contribute to white supremacy. There's no way. And that sets her up to not really understand what she's saying and also only see herself from an individual standpoint, not a societal standpoint. Because the truth is, if Alex was a perfect employer, nothing's going to change for Amira. The wage inequality is not going to change. And she just is, is so obsessed with her individual actions that it really just gets the best of her a lot of the time. Yeah, it's interesting also that Alex is uh, a character whose career is founded on a use of social media in a very Mm -hmm. specific way that has an enormous amount of privilege built into it because she's, I mean, the way I read her, she's essentially a bit of a scammer. She writes letters to people to get stuff for free 
And then she kind of built her empire off the back of that. And it felt to me like um, what she stand, like the empire that she's standing on and what she represents is very much white feminism rather than a feminism that encompasses the needs of women outside of that bracket. Right. I think that social media does make it possible for people to sell a philosophy rather than actual action or, you know, change in any way. And it's uh, it reminds me of the the clothing stores that you see how they market things. It's like they're not marketing clothes. They're marketing what to look like a little bit. So I think Alex is more marketing aesthetics, but she's not the only one to do it. It works for her. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about social media yeah. as well, because that's the theme of our show yeah. today. And this book is so much about social media. And in some ways, I think writing a contemporary story, you kind of have to include it. But I wonder if you were thinking about the different ways that social media can work while you're writing this and what you wanted to explore. Yeah, um, I think you're right. You can't really write a modern day story anymore without having social media. I go to it so often. The other day I wanted to show a friend what an Italian greyhound looked like and I just went to Instagram and put Italian greyhound and immediately, it's just such a part of our lives immediately. I think that I was really interested in showing Amira as this person who didn't gravitate towards social media, but also isn't ready to show everyone what her life looks like because she's in this low status job that's being purposely kept low status and she's not ready to show people I babysit for a living. I also think consent when it comes to social media is really interesting, um, especially when it comes to children. Like I am so ready for whatever documentary is in like 10 years and it shows children who've been on Instagram for their entire lives. And I have to wonder like, when I want that, if I was a child, it's just like you're immediately in the spotlight. And I think that we'll find those things out as time goes on. I like social media at the same time. It's a strange place as I, as I, as I think a lot of writers share their work. Um, you have to figure out the boundaries that you're not comfortable setting up. And as I've gone forward with this book, I've had conversations with, you know, my husband and we've said, okay, what, where do we want to set up boundaries? And one place we said was our home. And the next day we get an offer. So please can we come in your home and take pictures of what, you know, your space and everything. And it's hard to say no because it feels, you know, as a writer, you're like, I have to say yes to everything. But that's a good boundary that we've set up. Yeah, it's important. And it's important to, yes, essentially insert yourself in that process because it's going to be different at different stages of your life as well. And I think that's something that comes up in the book as well, that, you know, your characters have a flexible relationship with social media too. Some of them because their consent is violated and some of them because they choose it. Mm -hmm. um, and it, problemati it problematizes that very interesting thing, like getting behind the mechanism of what happens when a video goes viral, for right. example. Um, it feels like very rich territory. Yeah, I've had a lot of people, as they read the first chapter, and I completely understand this frustration, say, I wanted her to share that video. I felt so frustrated. She needed to get justice. And I think that it's hard to remember that, you know, I wouldn't trust the internet with just any video of me either, especially a video of a young black woman being really angry is going to be seen in a very different way. Yeah, the internet will do what it will. And it's very scary. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about readers voicing their frustrations mm -hmm. about the actions of your fictional characters. And of course, the internet makes that easier for people mm -hmm. to do. I wonder if that has been a surprise for you or something that's really inspiring for you that people have such um, strong feelings about what happens in your novel. I love the strong feelings. Any strong <laughs> feelings, if they're good or bad, mostly they're really great. And so that's been really nice. But even when someone feels it should have gone in a different way, I, I think that's wonderful, too. I love a derisive ending, too. And some people have written me and saying, I didn't like the ending, and I know I'm not supposed to, and I just wanted it to go better. And I think that that's actually a okay reaction as well, because I wanted the ending to speak more to the truth for young African-American women, which is not, you know, she's not going to win the lottery and have the same house that Alex has at the end. Yeah, it's been interesting getting feedback back for sure. Yeah, yeah this is what I, the reason I loved the ending is that it felt like, and without giving too much away, but it felt like, the reality of a happy ending these days is different. It's not mm -hmm. Prince Charming on a white charger, you know, it's right. stability of a different kind. And I think it's really important that the stories we're telling reflect that. Right. But as a reader, and maybe as a writer, you still have to um, respect the fact that you might still want the Prince Charming ending because that's oh, yeah. what we've been conditioned to believe. Oh, so conditioned. It's so fun. I mean, and I'm a rom-com fan myself. I love those moments as well. Um, but I think now, maybe as I get older, I love genre bendy versions of that. And for this one, 
I feel like I would have been doing a disservice to my characters if Amira became, you know, queen of Philadelphia at the end of this. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of genre, I think we both were wondering whether you thought this book was a satire. It's a great question. Some of my favorite art has satirical elements, but is not strictly satire. And I think that, you know, satire is when you use humor and like, you know, uh, outrageous premises to, to make fun of systems. And I think that there are definitely lines that point, point fun at versions of feminism that aren't really doing anything or uh, the way that people talk to others when they think that they're doing something and they're not. I think that I'm definitely poking fun at those those systems and using satirical elements, but I also have like really traditional plot lines and, and rom-com type things in this novel as well. I wanted to ask you about Briar because you chuck a child in. Briar's the three-year-old yeah. who Amira babysits and that brings an element of comedy inevitably, right? But how was it to get into the mind of a three-year-old and how did you, uh, did you have any tricks to getting into that space? Because it's such a different character space to the, the adults You're in right. the novel. It is. I did babysit for maybe... 50 different families and I used to work at a birthday party studio and I would do like eight birthday parties a week so I was singing happy birthday to a lot of three-year-olds what is so. a birthday party studio so it's called the craft studio it's really cute it's in New York City and I loved it a lot and they do birthday parties for children and I have to say it's it's pretty adorable they like curate it to the child and like their favorite songs come on and it's very very cute and so I did that for a long time and I got to hear a lot of different voices I think children in literature sometimes are used as a prop in a way that I don't like where they reveal a secret at a perfect point or they're just so precocious and I get really annoyed when when child humor is considered humor because it's adult-like instead of just who the child is and so with this novel like everything else I do I interviewed a lot of moms about things that their children say and sometimes I would say you know what's the funniest thing your child has ever said and some moms would say oh you know Teddy says Mommy, I hate Trump. And I'm just like, you told him to say that. <laughs> that's not, like, I understand, but that's not something that he thought up on his own. And so with Briar, it was so important for me to have everything that she says and every funny instant she had, the things that she came to the understanding on her own, because that's when I think children really shine. Yeah, and it also reflects back on adults, the adult reading how uh, it would be to look at the world for the first time again, yeah. which obviously we're so distant from now. Yeah. Um, that's what I loved about her. I, I actually, I have to say, probably out of all the characters in the novel, I identified the most with Briar. Okay, <laughs> I feel the same way. Like, people that's always amazing. ask me who I am, and I'm like, I think I'm Briar because I need to know what's coming up next all the time. Same. Yeah, I completely understand. Okay, I'm very yeah. glad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have to ask if you guys babysat as well. Yeah. 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 I was not very good at it. I mean, I love hanging out with children, yeah. but I'm a useless cook and I uh, uh, couldn't drive. So, you know, like the more practical elements of it, I, I wasn't great. I bet you were pretty good, Carrie. <laughs> I was good at some things. I'm I'm also not a practical. Well, I'm a little bit of a pra I'm not a domestic person. So I was great at playing with the kids. I loved playing. That's the most important part, I feel. They can eat later. That's good. Yeah, okay, so. that sounds good. Yeah, I mean, yeah. mine just ate a lot of frozen peas and fish fingers. That was like <laughs> <the> standard. <laughs> I was very good at designing obstacle courses. Ooh, that's oh, that was my speciality. Yeah. I would play in your fort. But yeah. you're right. It's a it's a weird thing. And yeah. I always felt, as a 16-year-old, I couldn't believe that adults were trusting me with their children. As you say, that precarious situation where I was like, that, you know, these children are in my care. Oh, and yeah. I am not an adult yet. Oh, I yeah. knew it at the time. I was baffled. Oh, yeah. that There was one family I was babysitting for, and I was like 22, and they were so cute. And I put the baby on her little seat for, you know, it's always a second. I turn around because her sister is screaming that she wants Dora the Explorer on. And I go to turn the TV on. And the little one fell off the seat she was on, which was very close to the ground. But she just, like, head dove and just skinned her entire face. She looked like she'd been in a car accident. I feel like I aged, like, four years in that time. And I'm calling her mom. And I'm texting her mom. And she's crying. And she's fine. And her mom came home and she was like, things happen. It's okay. Don't worry about it. But it didn't have to go like that. That could have been the worst situation. But their mom had been with the kid when he broke his arm one time and knew that same fear that I was in. But not all parents would react like that. Yeah, it's really scary. It's really scary. Yeah, very scary. <laughs> <laughs> so no babysitting for you too. <laughs> Why did you decide to set this book in Philadelphia? I know that's where you live now, but I'm interested in... in
this was a good city to have all of these events happening in. Yeah. Um, I visited Philadelphia in 2015 and I saw Beyonce there and I kind of just fell in love with the city a little bit. But I think more importantly, I was really intrigued what Philadelphia is doing for Alex and Amira as newcomers. Uh, for Alex, she's like, well, it's not New York. It's like New York's little sister. Who cares? Um, which makes her sad, but also she can kind of be herself and just watch HGTV and drink mimosas and do whatever she wants when she wants it. And for Amira, this is an exciting new city where she wants to become an adult. And it's worked out really nicely as Philadelphia is kind of leading the way right now for Domestic Worker Bill of Rights, which was just passed. And so they're working to make sure that domestic caregivers get uh, two weeks notice, sick days, vacation leave, all of those things. And everyone has a contract with the family, whether or not they signed anything. And so I kind of love that if I the story had happened now, it would be really different because Amira would have different rights now. That's great. Yeah, yeah that's really great. And I want to get back to something you said about the history of slavery. I wonder yeah. if you could talk about that a little bit more and how you think it relates to the way that caregivers are treated today in the United States. I mean, the history of black women caring for white children has been huge part of the history of the United States. And then I think in the 1930s, when different rights were being settled, farm workers and domestic caregivers were not given any rights. And who were those people? It was mostly people of color. And so I think that, of course, Amir is getting paid $16 an hour, which is pretty good for a babysitter now. But all of that history still affects her now with themes of ownership and what's appropriate for her to do, what's not appropriate for her to do, the fact that she doesn't have health insurance, the fact that she's good at her job and doesn't have like a journey. There's no like, at this point you get a promotion or at this point you do this. It just isn't seen as a high status paying job because of all those years of slavery. And so I was obviously thrilled to write about these things because the ownership themes are so thick. But as a person, I'm, I'm horrified that it's still, still affecting them today. I wanted to ask you about the character Kelly as well, who yeah. is Imira's white boyfriend. And the complexity of his character uh, brings in another layer of the way that um, men try to own women, even when they have good intentions and they don't necessarily know. But then obviously the racial dynamic speaks to what you've just been talking about, too. And I, yeah, I had a lot of feelings about this guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> And they change ac across the course of the novel, of yeah. course. But I, I want to know how you feel about him. I mean, I love all my characters, their flaws and all, or I wouldn't be able to write about them. But Kelly, um, I think that with him, I was most interested in the fact that the line between really caring about someone and fetishizing someone is so slippery and thin, I think, for a lot of people. I remember when I was a child, I had I grew up in Arizona, which is a very white place, and I had friends who their parents loved me and invite me over all the time, and I was there for holidays. But I know that if their daughters had ever brought home a black man, they would not be okay with that. And I think that them really loving me and also feeling that way is really harmonious, and they don't really see how that doesn't make sense together. And so with Kelly, I was really interested in writing someone who's really into Amira. He really likes her, but also she isn't sure about where he's benefiting from this, just from her company or from something else that this says about him. And I think that that slight fetishism is almost a little bit scarier than not because I think we want to believe, you know, if this is a bad guy, he will show it and I will stay away from him and that'll be it. But this is trickier. Um, he's human. And he's also really hot, so she doesn't know what to do all the time. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah exactly. You make him sound really hot. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. yeah, I was into it. Yeah. Um, I What I took away from this book is exactly what you're just saying, is it's so easy to think about people as good or bad. And nobody in this book, nobody in this book is untarnished, but also nobody is wholly bad. Totally, and, yeah. and And it's really confusing because, and you see how it's especially difficult for a woman like Amira, who is African-American, she's in a, in a lower paying job, and she has to not only navigate all of those things, but also that she has to kind of question everyone's why they're interested in her yeah, all the yeah. time. There's this amazing passage when you talk about her relationship with Kelly, where she's kind of thinking about the future between them. And it's like just this list of all of the things that she's going to have to facilitate in the relationship mm -hmm. because he's white. And I think it really brought that out, that how much more difficult it makes things. Right, right. I think that part especially, I mean, there's so many things that a lot of black women have to consider from like, okay, if I go to this job interview, can I wear my hair like this? Or if I, you know, have this friend, will she understand if I tell her we can't go to this place? 
And I think that those are the smaller ones but that goes to, am I not getting a raise because of this? Am I not getting this housing opportunity because of this? And it's this completely like alternate like way of thinking that controls every part of your life. I think it became clear that any effort I spend towards making characters good or bad takes away from the energy of looking at the systems that they're in that allow them to be this way. Um, you know, there's this really big racist incident in the first chapter that's very clearly racial bias. But for the rest of the whole novel, Amira is concerned about her health care, and that's a racist incident too. And so I was really into showing all the facets of really overt racism and then the ones that happen systemically. That was something that some of the white characters didn't always understand. They their backs immediately got up when they when somebody questioned their actions, and it was partially because they were seeing it as such an individual thing that they were doing rather than something that was part of a larger system. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and I just I feel like you know one there's the exchange of goods, which changes the dynamic of a relationship. You know I would never pay my friends to hang out with me and, and have a glass of wine with me so obviously there's going to be a dynamic there but two if you're constantly worried that you're going to say the wrong thing I just don't see how like a natural relationship would form between you and someone else but they just keep pushing it so. <laughs> yeah. I also love the way you look at um, success and what success actually means in this novel as well and in that you'll you're really working across kind of class divides and expectations too, not just race, because um, there are characters of color who have ideas about what success might look like for Amira that are different from how Amira feels about what is successful for her. And I feel like that's something that's very nuanced and, and I haven't read in that much contemporary fiction, like this idea that we can self-define success and that is not feeling like we've become successful is not necessarily at odds with having a low wage a low status right. job let's say right and like people uh, seem to want to impose an idea of what success looks like on a mirror oh, um, yeah. and yeah it's it, you get into this very thorny sort of world of projection and expectation and I wanted to ask you about that like what yeah. drew you to write about that um I remember I've had a lot of jobs in my 20s, and I had a few. I remember I worked at Godiva Chocolate for like three years, and then I was a receptionist. And those two jobs in particular, people would always say, but what do you really want to do? But what do you really want to do? And I had a very easy answer I wanted to write, but I also enjoyed being a receptionist, and I could have been that for a long time. And, I, you know, what if that was what I wanted to do, and why isn't this an okay thing to do? Um, and that really drew me to Amira. What if, you know, being a babysitter does really serve you and you have a really awesome child and this is serving you why isn't that enough and so everyone has a huge problem with her very natural rejection to careerism it really makes people unsettled and for people like Tamara who's an African-American principal and have very strong opinions I think it goes even deeper and also has like uh, effect of slavery of not just you're holding yourself back but you're holding us back and the respectability politics that she holds are really thick and it comes across very condescending. Finally, I just wanted to ask you about the title because yeah. it seems to have a lot of different interpretations. I mean, of course, it's about the ages of the characters and, and everywhere from being a three-year-old to a 25-year-old to, you know, a mom. But it also seems to be saying something about contemporary America. Oh, totally. Uh, the 2015 setting is very, very purposeful in that I think it's a common thing to romanticize where we were when that was the year that Black Lives Matter movement really made itself known. And like we were talking about in the beginning, you know, in many ways this is a really old story, uh, but it seems new because the way of social media puts it on the forefront. But I also think it's just impossible to be a babysitter and not hear this phrase all the time whenever at the playground. Oh, how old is she? Oh, 15 months. Oh, such a fun age. I've heard that <laughs> so many times. But also so. what it's what people say about your 20s, too. Exactly. And that's, yeah. of course, where Amira exactly. is. Yeah, and she's not having fun all no. the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kylie Reed, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a total pleasure. This was lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
This episode is sponsored by Picador, who published some brilliant nonfiction that engages with contemporary political discourse. That's right, and it feels like the kind of writing that's been gaining big traction for a while now, actually. For example, books like Rani Edo Lodge's Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race are resonating with huge numbers of people. And there's a lot of other campaigning nonfiction that's been published in recent years, which is setting the political agenda. Picador publishes writers who seek to engage readers with issues of vital political importance, from the queer experience to understanding homelessness in Britain today. Don't they, Carrie? Yes, they do. So Picador recently published Queer Intentions, an exploration into the contemporary LGBTQ plus experience from journalist Amelia Abraham, who traveled the world to write this book. From the world's biggest drag convention in L.A. to parties in Turkey's underground LGBTQ plus scene and meeting a genderless family in Stockholm, this is an immersive, intelligent, joyful and thought provoking investigation into what it means to be queer today. It's out now. It sounds great. I've been dying to read that book. Yeah. Um, another example of this kind of writing from Picador is It's Not About the Burka, which is out in paperback now. Um, and another one I really want to read. It's an anthology of essays edited by activist Mariam Khan about the contemporary female Muslim experience. In 2016, Mariam Khan read that David Cameron, our fave guy, had linked <laughs> the radicalization of Muslim men to the traditional submissiveness of Muslim women. Can you oh my believe God. he said I that? I actually didn't know that and that uh, is shocking. I know. He's such a dirtbag. Well, bag. not that shocking. But yeah. <laughs> not only was this characterization antithetical to her own experience and the experience of every Muslim woman she knew, she also realized that Muslim women themselves were rarely, if ever, leading voices in the national discourse about the female Muslim experience in Britain. So evidently a really vital book. Yeah, these kinds of books, I'm, it's so great to see them working so well in the market right now. Yeah. And these both sounds, sound, I haven't read either, but they both sound like amazing contributions to this kind of campaigning literature. Big time. This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright, who's looking very bright today. (laughs) You are feeling playful, aren't you? I am. (laughs) Maybe inspired by the theme. Yeah, it's a playful theme. Which is social media and literature. Mm -hmm. So let's just get into it. Of course, I think we should say that novels have always been concerned with social interactions, the advent of new technology, but... I think we're just going to focus on social media today, which means that we don't have the whole back catalog of literature to play with. But there have been a number of novels that have really tried to engage with social media recently. So why don't we begin by talking about what we think using social media within literature can do? Let's do it. (laughs) I think it sets up immediately um, a, a kind of antagonistic relationship between the public and private self, because you straight up have characters who can you can have them creating their persona on their social media networks and then acting in a different way in in the dynamic with other characters. But I think also, crucially, it provides an instant hook of relevance for the reader. And I think that's why it tends to come up a lot in YA fiction and teen fiction, right? Because social media is such a big part of many of our lives. And if you want to be speaking to a contemporary experience of the world today, to not include it in your writing would feel very artificial, I think. And that doesn't mean that contemporary stories have to focus only around it but if you're writing about a character from a particular demographic they're probably going to have an Instagram account or the fact that they don't have an Instagram account becomes a social signifier that's then interesting in the rest of the text so I think it can be used in lots of different ways it can also be used as a kind of meta text within the text you know when writers bring in text messages or email or gchat or any of these other forms and also dating apps all that kind of stuff that creates the terrain of the contemporary experience a contemporary digital digital experience, I guess I should say. Yeah, I agree. Something, a a book that's trying to speak to our contemporary experience could not include these kinds of technology because they, they touch all of our lives, however young or old we are, really, unless you're someone, you know, you're a grandpa in Cornwall who doesn't Use Twitter. <laughs> Pick it up, Grandpa Bobby. <laughs> I respect you, Grandpa. I respect no shade you, too, Grandpa. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because you're saying it has to include it and it, it makes it have relevance. But a lot of people often say that using the newest technology in a novel before we've fully assimilated what it means or maybe how to use it or maybe how it's affecting our culture, it can seem quite jarring and, and dated. I think that that comes, I think that's fair. And I also think it comes from a kind of literary snobbery that's to do with literature as legacy rather than literature that can also be something that's quite immediate. And that's where social media again comes back into play because social media is 
often it involves text um, and it's a kind of literature of its own. Twitter is a literature of its own. The way people use Instagram is changing and people write vastly long captions underneath. It can be used as a medium for sharing literature that's unpublished. Um, it can give space to people who can't engage with or are excluded from the traditional modes of publishing to share their work. So I think um, novels, for example, that are going to use it I mean, people often say they have a fear that they'll then become anachronistic later in time. But so what? Doesn't matter if they're yeah. if you're writing to Any the contemporary novel is moment. Anachronistic. Absolutely, and I think the idea that something can't be timeless if it engages with a very contemporary um, medium is a wrong. But b I think it's founded on the fact that as what we know as progress, and I do question the use of that term because I don't think it is always progressing us, but technological progress is speeding up and things are happening very rapidly now. Whereas there was a long period of time in the past where everybody was just writing letters for a very fucking long time. So you could read a Dostoevsky novel, or you could read a Virginia Woolf novel, and they didn't feel worlds apart in some ways, right? But now you read a Virginia Woolf novel alongside um, contemporary fiction today, and they feel worlds apart often, particularly if they're using social media. But I think that there's an argument for the fact that social media is just another form of the epistolary mode, right? The letter writing mode, which was in novel form from the very beginning. Definitely. And I also think the ways in which it seems jarring are often because the author has not understood how these kinds of conversations actually unfold or how this language is used on Twitter. You know, it feels it feels inauthentic right. rather than like it will date quickly. Yeah. And I was thinking about, okay, which authors that I love use this to good effect? And I was thinking about Sally Rooney, of course. Yeah. She she is so great at bringing other textual influences into her writing and also recreating email conversations, chats. And that feels, it. I mean, it, it feels authentic. It feels like she understands the modes in which we communicate with each other online and also how that bleeds into how we communicate with each other in our lives. I think that's what so feels so relevant about Sally Rooney is that you see the way that that language has actually influenced our conversations. Yeah, and how the relationship you have with someone in the written word via WhatsApp informs the relationship you have with them in real life and vice versa. I mean, I think Yelena Moscovich in her novel Virtuoso does this brilliantly as well. She brings in um, like chat rooms and uh, she has these characters meeting kind of in a lesbian chat room as a safe space that couldn't exist out in the real world in when the novel is set, which I think was in the 90s. And it's again, it's perfect. It doesn't feel anachronistic or exploitative because it feels like the author has a deep, deeply lived understanding of what that is and the role that it plays. Yeah, Ben Lerner does it too in Leaving the Atosha Station. He has G-chats. And I, I should shout out to Rebecca Watson who wrote an article about this in the FT. She has a book coming out herself and, and she talked about how novels can incorporate the language of social media. And actually the novel form has to kind of shift to incorporate those things. But that is more of an exciting challenge than something that's keeping the novel back. And she talked about her own writing process, writing her novel, which ended up being quite fragmentary in part because she was thinking about the ways in which we switch between different platforms and technologies all the time. And I really love that idea that social media itself can reform the novel. Oh, yeah, super interesting. I, I think then there are writers who are working um, in the theme of social media as a kind of narrative device, which I think um, Olivia Sujic does in her novel Sym Sympathy. Mm -hmm. um, and then in her nonfiction uh, essay, book-length essay, Exposure, she talks a lot about the relationship to social media for her as a writer and that um, the conditions of anxiety that surround that and this projection of a public self and the necessity for us to project public selves if we are in the public eye in any way, as a even as a writer, which was traditionally not necessarily a role that meant being in the public eye, right? It meant being in the public consciousness through words, but now there's this expectation of showing up in, in um, not necessarily in real life, but in photographic form or you know what I mean like yeah as yeah. a brand basically yeah and, and again that's a way that literature can really investigate and interrogate the way our lives are lived now on in through new technology yeah and, and sort of get underneath the surface one of the things I loved about such a fun age was 
it did feel like it was sort of the backstory of a number of different things that you might experience on the internet, but not really know the story behind. So like a viral video, an Instagram influencer, all of these things that we see and only see the surface of. And what Kylie Reid manages to do is dig underneath those things and expose just how complicated they really are. Yeah, for sure. And how nefarious they can be. Yeah, and there's a whole bunch of literature devoted to how nefarious they can be. I was thinking of our friend Dave Eggers, who, of course, wrote The Circle, which is Good old a, Dave. A, a critique of of social media and Silicon Valley. And I haven't read that, so I don't want to make fun of the novel. But um, but I, th- I think that kind of maybe dystopian satire is really important, too, because, of course, there are ways in which social media can be harmful. Yeah, Charlene Teo in her novel Ponty satirizes it a bit. She has a character called Circe with all of the references that that name conjures of, you know, classical Greek texts, um, who is a social media consultant and um, who exists as a sort of satirical figure. But I think it's also really important to mention some of the nonfiction that's been written about this stuff. Definitely. There's a fabulous book called The Attention Merchants by Tim Wu, which I haven't read all of, but my, um, my boyfriend was reading and he constantly would screenshot Uh, sections from it and send it to me and um, the bits that I have read are are fascinating and very prescient about how our attention is being monetized as a commodity in late late stage capitalism and a lot of the moral panic around um, the way that social media is potentially interfering with our ability to pay the kind of attention you need to read a novel, for example, it, it feels very important. And then, of course, there's The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff, which Zadie Smith recommended when we spoke to her. And I have begun and uh, I'm scared to keep going because it's again, it feels very, very vital and important. But I know it's kind of going to ruin something that currently brings me some pleasure, <laughs> i.e. being on social media. Yeah, and related to that, uh, How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell, which a lot of people have been talking about, again, is about attention. And let's think about that in terms of books again, because a lot of the fear around social media is that it's changing the way we pay attention and perhaps is changing our ability to read and focus on novels. Do you think that's just scaremongering? I think there's something in it. But I don't think it's an either or situation. Like I know if I uh, if I go on Twitter, for example, before I sit down to work, um, I get into a mode of thinking that, yes, does feel like my attention span is shorter. And I know if I want to do the kind of deep focus I need to do if I'm writing or if I'm reading actively, you know, academically or um, uh, critically, then I need to turn my phone off and I need to turn my screen off and I need to, to focus. But I don't think that my life online precludes my ability to do deep concentration. I think it just has to be a mindful choice. And I think actually it always did. You know, I, if I wasn't being distracted by Twitter, I was being distracted by something shiny out the window. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, although I, I do worry about this. And I think we're in a transition phase right now where we have to think carefully about how we focus our attention in in ways that I didn't used to have to do. I just find myself sometimes I'm reading a novel and I just want to check my phone every second and I feel my mind sort of going to all of the things that might be happening on my phone, even if my phone isn't in front of me. And I'm trying really consciously now to train myself out of that and and use techniques. So leaving my phone in another room, of course. Um, I downloaded this app that doesn't let you use your phone for certain periods of time. And you're growing a tree and the tree dies if you leave the app. (laughs) (laughs) And it actually makes me feel really guilty when the tree dies. It's very effective. So forest, I would recommend it to all. (laughs) Do you know what else helps if you want to not use your phone to stop you from using your phone is meditation. Mm. anything that practices um, focusing in the present. Because the thing about social media and the phone, this tiny computer that is like, I feel like we're all post-human basically, like we've grown this extra limb, which is this computer, um, is that it it allows you to not have to be in the present. And that's what we're always talking about, you know, that the, the need to find ways to be still. Um, and yes, maybe that does become harder. But I, I guess I just want to stand against the moral panic because I think that there's so much about social media that can be very positive as well. For example, being uh, using social media as a way to become educated about ways of life that are not proximate to you, that you need to learn about in order to be a better human being in the world. Like Instagram and the activists working in that space have opened doors for people that wouldn't have been open otherwise. So it's complex because obviously it's a capitalist tool that then hooks your attention in order to sell things to you. And my God, I'm never more vulnerable than when I'm on Instagram to the suggestibility of a new pair of shoes when it pops up, you know, and I've noticed that and it freaks me out. Mm. But I also think that it's important to stand, to, to see both sides essentially. Yeah. And to not be 
anti it in it. I just think the moral panic is 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 to be wary of as well. I completely agree. And also people are always having moral panics about new technology. And and maybe this is different, but I suspect it isn't. Mm. Um, and, and social media has brought me a lot of joy. I mean, getting back to books, I love getting recommended books on social media. I think a lot of the books that I end up picking up for pleasure, and even for this radio show to some extent, are books that people have been talking about on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah. And I love the way that space, the the book world works in that space because it's genuine passion about books that people love and are recommending to people outside of the space of, you know, reviews which people don't really read anymore. It's yeah. it's an amazing place to get recommendations. It undercuts the hegemony of uh, you know, established modes of like passing on that kind of information. Like it's an amazing way to basically be subversive about reading lists given out in universities or the politics of which books get reviewed by the mainstream press, which, holy shit, is a really big thing, you know? Yeah, and I, I guess you can argue that in some ways those spaces just reinforce what is already being pushed um, yeah. by... But, but I like to think of it as a space that feels a little freer. I think it does. I think it can do. But I think like any kind of media um, that you're going to consume, you have to consume it mindfully. Just like if you're reading a newspaper you know, do what your history teacher taught you with sources and be aware what the political bent of that newspaper is. Remember that your social media feeds are owned by Facebook and, you know, they are tools for capitalism. Yeah. But if you hold that in mind, I think you can find ways to subvert the system, which you know is my favorite thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do you think we should be concerned about the fetishization of the book as object on Instagram? Um, I don't know about concerned about it. I think it's a thing and I think it is... I think it's something that deserves thinking deeply about. I also think it can just be a pleasurable experience. I think the trouble is books are never divorced from a social signifier of some kind that is to do with um, stating how educated you are or how open-minded you are or do you know what I mean? So there's something in there that's uncomfortable. Um, to be honest, it's not something I've thought about hugely deeply and I want to yeah. more. I don't have so much of a problem with it because ultimately when you're taking a picture of a book, you're still telling people to read that book. It's, yeah. I, I don't think it's possible to, and, and maybe the fetishization goes too far sometimes, but I also think we do sometimes judge books by their cover and that's not such a bad thing. I, I think mean, I do it book all covers the can time. be beautifully designed things that can be gateways into discovering new new fiction and nonfiction. So and book covers have been around since before Instagram and been influencing people since before Instagram as well. Yeah, totally. I also am very aesthetically driven generally in life. And so I'm very pro book covers becoming nicer to look at. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think that's great. Just on, like on a superficial level. Yeah. And the other thing is that books do need to look nicer now to compete with ebooks because that's what they can offer a really pleasurable experience of holding an object in your a beautiful object in your hand. Yeah. Let's talk about our favorite social media novels. What's yours, Octavia? Mine is N.W. by Zadie Smith, mm. um, which was published in 2012. And it does what she always does so brilliantly, which is represents the contemporary world as it is in the moment in which she's writing. Um, it's about Lee Hanwell, who's white, and Natalie Blake, who's black. And they're two women in their 30s who grew up as best friends on the same council estate in northwest London. Um, and it looks at the different ways their lives have developed. It's about race, class, social aspiration, friendship, and the different personas a person can adopt throughout their life, um, which is very much akin to what we've been talking about. The thing that makes it relevant here, though, is Natalie's secret experimentation with using dating sites that she uses to meet swinger couples to have threesomes with. And it's, yeah, I just think it's great to read about the phenomenon of online dating and hookup apps and how uh, it changes the way people have sex and the way that people relate to romance. So, yeah, that's mine. Yeah, it's a great book. And I hadn't really thought about it in relation to social media, but I like that you've brought out that point. There. Yeah, it's just quite a specific lens, but it works. Yeah. So for me, I think it has to be Super Sad True Love Story by Gary Steingart. This novel was extremely prescient in 2010 about where we would be as a culture even 10 years down the line. And I think it maybe makes an argument for one of the best ways to write about social media is in this kind of satirical mode that he's chosen. He's also kind of writing about a dystopia. So it's set in the very near future in an economically unstable United States. They've had this thing called the rupture. Um, and he lives in New York and Staten Island is the really trendy neighborhood now. It's quite it's quite funny and tongue in cheek. And it's the story of an, a very old fashioned sort of social outcast who loves this young, very tech savvy woman. And it's about his his love for her. But also there 
everyone in this society call, has a device called an apparat that can broadcast their thoughts and conversations and even this thing called their hotness quotient. And sort of when you walk into a bar, it displays your hotness quotient. Oh, my God. That makes me want yeah, to die. But it's, it's like stuff that's, yeah, yeah. you know, coming more real. Oh. And it's it's really fun to read. And I love that the register is not like doomsday the kind of black mirror you know like this is what will happen when social media goes too far you know it's 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 lighthearted and warm and really funny and very human and it's it's just a really fun novel to read yeah it sounds good although i don't like that hotness thing (laughs) (laughs) but it's satirical i I know i i I, i'll allow it I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright and Kylie Reed to give our book recommendations. Octavia, do you want to start? I do. My recommendation is The Water Dancer by Tanahisi Coates, who is a writer most known for his nonfiction, but this is his first novel, and it is brilliant. It's a really powerful, kind of huge feeling book that I think is going to be difficult to talk about in a short way. Um, it's not massive in size. I mean, it's quite long, but it's not. Um, it's more the scope of it that is so vast, and it's completely transporting it uses a mixture of real life and imagined narratives to tell the story of Hiram who's a slave on a Virginia plantation who's incredibly gifted and has this indelible photographic memory Um, and he learns how to time travel via a method called conduction so it's bringing a kind of magical realist element to this very troubled history in um, the United States and the more whimsical elements are actually very firmly grounded in reality so the story includes the underground railroad network um, and the abolitionist Harriet Tubman and when these characters appear that you recognize from history there's this kind of sense of real excitement but he takes you into this almost wish fulfillment um, space of the magical real and uh, it weaves together folktale and history using incredibly careful and very precise language which I think keeps it on track as well and stops it from running away from itself and at times the register almost feels like it's a fable which subtly brings home the horror that actually it isn't and the story at the, the heart of this is reality um, and that the history is real and still actually very much alive and that we mustn't forget it um, and it's it's always uncompromising but never fetishistic about the terrible violence suffered by slaves at the hands of, of slave owners um, and really it's about the importance of having long memories when it comes to history and the power of literature to keep an account of history and to make the past alive in the present I'm desperate to read that yeah you'll really enjoy it it's a fabulous book Kylie could we have your book recommendation please Absolutely. My recommendation is a book called Jillian by Hallie Butler. I love anything that really dives into the quality and culture of work and emotional labor. And I was a receptionist for a long time, so I will read anything about a receptionist. This one is about a receptionist who's having a really hard time in her private life with the person who sits next to her. Um, Any author who can speak from a first-person perspective, kudos to them. I don't think I can do it very well, but this is a character who's a mess, and she's so endearing, and you want the best for her but her bad decisions make a lot of sense. Um, It's bleak, it's really funny, um, it's super dark, and it's really great. I read it in one day, it's really good. It sounds really good. What a recommendation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So this month I'm going to recommend In the Cut by Susanna Moore. This was a novel published in the 90s and was even made into a movie with Meg Ryan, which I've been told is is a pretty good film, movie. Love Meg. <laughs> yeah, we do love Meg. However, it had gone out of print. And thanks to basically a very passionate literary agent, it was reissued by Weidenfeld and Nicholson last year. And there was quite a lot of buzz about it. I was really excited to read it. And I'm really glad to say that it is a great book, too. It is very sexy. It's a thriller about Franny, a teacher in New York City who is obsessed with languages and teaches students about languages and her dangerous entanglement with a murder that she might have witnessed and the policeman investigating it. It's very well written. It's also playful with genre. I love that this felt like noir, but from a woman's perspective, which that genre so often isn't. 
And it's a really interesting look at the intersection of sex and violence. It is also genuinely hot, I have to say. You know, it That's was great. It's hot. And it's hard to write a book like that, especially from a woman's perspective. I You really don't usually read that. So I was very grateful for it, if that's the right thing to say. I I also just didn't know it was going to happen. It's a thriller, and I read it very, very quickly and excitedly. So if that sounds like your thing, I definitely recommend it. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, Kylie Reed, to Paula at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.